World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the AmeriChicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. I am absolutely thrilled to have in studio with me today uh, Brigadier General, he's retired, Chris Petty. He uh, served in the Army. It is great to have you here, Chris. Kim, thanks. Pleasure to be here. And uh, you are doing something really exciting, the Battle Digest. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com. Uh, all of our shows are archived there, and uh, you can certainly listen to those uh, and share them from uh, americhicks.com. So, um, General Petty, let's go ahead and jump in here. First of all, where uh, where did you serve? Well, uh, most recently, I, I actually retired out of Northcom down in Colorado Springs. A lot of people are familiar with that. Uh, before that, I was in the Pentagon working in the Army G3, which is operations. Um, and before that, I was the NATO commander in Bosnia, which was quite an interesting assignment for a young general officer. Uh, and then various assignments, brigade command. Uh, I actually had the honor of commanding a uh, aviation battalion in Iraq during the surge. And uh, company command and staff, all that, all that stuff. I spent a lot of time on active duty, and I spent a lot of time also in the Colorado National Guard. So, a quick plug for them as well. Well, thank you for being here. You have uh, you've started a business, if you will. I think it's probably a labor of love, and that is Battle Digest. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, in in my time in uniform uh, during thirty one years, I was one of those officers that actually pulled my soldiers aside and tried to give them historically relevant classes that would relate to today's doctrine and today's challenges. You know, you can, you can pull lessons from any period of history in any battle and relate them to today's conflict and today's challenges. So what I realized in doing that is it was, it was quite time consuming to pull together all the resources and read through all the books and, and gather everything and produce a nice class or discussion and so I figured I'd make it easier. I'd create the resource for officers and, and non-commissioned officers to actually not only become more aware and knowledgeable of military history, but also to pull out those relevant, timeless principles and doctrinal lessons that you can, you can glean from any battle. And so that's how Battle Digest was born, really, as, as my attempt to solve that problem for young commanders out there, in, you know, in my case, in the Army. Um, but I'm also noticing we're, we're kind of losing some of our knowledge of history. And I know some of the younger generation, you know, they're very intelligent, but they just don't like to s- sit around and read the 250-page book. And so this is also a way to, to make it easy to, di- to understand and digest a, a historically significant battle, know really what happened and why, and how does it apply to today. And so I'm trying to actually make this very relevant for even just young people that want to understand military history because I think it's so vital. Well, And, you know, Chris, actually, I think that even people that have not served in the military, you can learn a lot about life uh, when you look at these different battles. And so I, I'm just totally fascinated with, with all this, and I, I'm not sure that I knew I was. It was three years ago when I was invited to go with a group that took four D-Day veterans back to D-Day for the 72nd D-Day celebration. Now, I, I knew D-Day, I knew something important happened in June in World War II. I had, had three uncles that served uh, in World War II. And so, you know, I, I kind of knew it was percolating in me. My dad had told me stories about uh, the Pacific Theater. He told me stories about, uh, you know, the European Theater D-Day. But I didn't really understand what an amazing, astonishing thing happened with D-Day. So let's talk about that today. Okay. And uh, so, well, you know, a couple of other things. People yeah. are going to want to know about these publications. Right. How many publications have you done? Right. So I have I have 12 battles that are published now. They're all very recognizable names from, um, you know, Hannibal's victory over the Romans at the Battle of Cannae all the way up until Desert Storm. So I'm trying to really start with some famous battles for name awareness and recognition. Uh, I'm producing about one battle to add to that library every month. Um, all your listeners have to do is go to battledigest.com, simply one word, battledigest.com, 
and they can find out the various methods of getting this this really high quality trifle brochure publication. Um, it's di- in digital form. It's a subscription. If you want me to mail it to you, uh, you can also individu- uh, individually order copies. So I hope your listeners check that out. You know, just a question. Uh, homeschooling is becoming more and more prevalent, I think. Yeah. This seems like this would be a good tool for parents or, you know, not even homeschooling, just parents, grandparents to talk with their children about these different battles. This would be a great tool to use. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I, I did a little experiment with a honors history teacher out of Douglas County High School, and he used it for his class as a critical thinking exercise because they were actually studying the uh, the Punic Wars in uh, in ancient Italy, and uh, they found it to be fantastic to support their lesson plan. They didn't have to really change anything. They just added it. And the kids, I got to interview some of the kids, and they said, wow, this is so easy to follow and comprehensible. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. In a a one-hour school class block, Mm -hmm. it made a difference. Yes. I really think that reading one of these a week or a month would probably change people's lives. I do too, actually. Oh, man. Okay, well, let's jump in here on D-Day. So I get the great honor to go to Normandy with these four D-Day veterans, and I didn't quite understand what had happened. But the people of Normandy, France, still revere these guys. We were invited, so they split the vets up, and we were invited to go with them to homes where they, it was like they they were welcoming a celebrity. And they still tell their kids the stories. They still, three, well, we're on third generation now, they have a grave adoption programs where people will have adopted the grave of one of our soldiers. And that started, Chris, with, um, you know, not all the bodies were brought home. There are, Mm -hmm. we have soldiers that are buried throughout Normandy and and other countries there in Europe. And it started with moms or sisters or wives saying, you know, I wasn't able to get my loved one home. They would write to the mayor of a little town, say, you know, his birthday is is this weekend, would you just go out and maybe put some flowers out there and take care of the grave? It's become a program, and one of the guys that we traveled with is now third generation. Hmm. His grandfather had adopted graves, his father, and now he has four uh, graves that he takes care of. It's it's pretty amazing that thing. It's an amazing tradition, yeah. So uh, the people of Normandy, France, were excited to see the Allied forces, but let's Tell us what happened. I mean, this was amazing. It was amazing. And the scale is hard to imagine. I mean, this is still the largest air and sea invasion in the history of mankind. You know, you bring you bring together 156,000 uh, allied troops, American, British, Canadian, and even some French uh, special, special forces types troops, uh, almost 7,000 ships taking part in this thing, uh, over 11,000 aircraft. 867 gliders. So this is a massive undertaking of of force projection and logistics. Um, people think of D-Day uh, also because it was such a turning point of the war. I mean, uh, the, the American leadership and the British leadership knew that it was inevitable that we had to invade the continent of Europe and establish that, that beachhead, that toehold, in order to project force into Nazi Germany, which is the only way to end this thing. Um, and so it was a matter of time until it was coming. And the Germans knew it was a matter of time as well. So it's this it's this epic struggle to, to outfox the opponent and figure out where you're going to make that invasion and include deception and, um, and maneuver to accomplish your goal. So, I mean, it was just an amazing undertaking. Well, it truly was. And so Hitler, again, standing on the beaches there, I hadn't realized what he had done, what they'd done to fortify those those beaches. Yeah. And uh, I mean. Yeah. So the Nazis knew it was coming. Yeah. Hitler knew it was coming eventually. And so they built what what is referred to as the Atlantic Wall. And that Atlantic Wall stretched about 800 miles um, from essentially Spain all the way up into uh, Scandinavian countries in the, in the Baltics um, because the Hitler had to defend against an allied attack from some area along that coastline. One of the, one of the great things about D-Day that, that, you know, a lot of people know 
is the deception operation. Um, it was called Operation Fortitude, and I know it's been referenced in movies, um, but the Allies created essentially um, in in the German leadership's mind, they, f- they figured that the invasion was going to hit the beaches around Calais because mm-hmm. it's the closest land mass, essentially land spot from England to northern France. And so the Allies ingeniously played to that bias of Hitler's and they even, they went to the extent of, um, you know, totally mock divisions Mm -hmm. and troops and radio broadcasts and maneuvers. And of course they put Patton in charge of a U.S. Army, a fictitious U.S. Army group because the Germans were impressed with Patton. Mm -hmm. So they figured wherever Patton might be, there would be the action. Mm -hmm. And so they played into those biases to create this great deception because because one of the things about D-Day that a lot of people don't understand is the the way that it was successful was because the Allies were able to punch through with a lot of force on a relatively narrow front. And if you're a defender, it's hard to defend against that if you don't know where it's coming mm-hmm. from because all your resources are spread up mm-hmm. along this 800-mile wall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the Atlantic Wall became this, quote, thin crust that once the Allies broke through – you know, if they could mass forces, mm-hmm. the the roll on to Germany was inevitable. Mm-hmm. And the weather was awful, though. The weather was awful, and and strangely enough, that played into the Allies' hands because, um, well, if most people know that Eisenhower struggled with the weather decision, and he delayed the invasion by essentially twenty four hours. But what that did is it convinced the Germans even more that the invasion wasn't coming in that sector because the weather was terrible. Uh, and so much so that Erwin Rommel, who was in charge of the defensive sector, uh, General Rommel, um, or Field Marshal Rommel, rather, he actually went back to Berlin to meet with Hitler to to sort of argue about use of reserve forces because he felt they were inadequate in his area. So Rommel was, was gone mm-hmm. during the invasion. He came back really, really quickly. But that's how much the Allies' deception plan and weather actually supported the invasion. Well, and you say in uh, your Battle Digest, uh, which is really an executive summary of these different battles, that they had learned, that the Allies had learned from World War I that they were going to have one commander, and it was General Dwight D. Eisenhower, later became a president, but he's a Kansas boy, I'm a Kansas girl, so as a a young kid, I went to the Eisenhower Museum, so that may be one of the other reasons I I know something about D-Day. Yeah, he was Eisenhower, obviously a great military leader, a great commander. Uh, and, and a lot of people know that he was chosen not just not because of his tactical operational skills, but strategically, he just had the temperament to keep a very complex and often contentious alliance together. So, you know, so good on the leadership of America and Great Britain that picked the right kind of commander, not just for tactical excellence, but but that larger uh, interpersonal relationship with with alliances gets pretty complicated, but it's very important. Okay. Now, you're a general yeah. in the Army. Eisenhower, general in the Army. What weighs on your mind as you're thinking? What, what do you think Eisenhower was going through the day before D-Day? He knew that there would be a tremendous loss of life of these brave, young Americans. What goes through his mind? I think I think. Probably the biggest thing going through a guy like that's mind at that time is, have I done everything I could do to lead these men up to the position of battle to be able to succeed? You know, once the shooting starts, once the invasion's launched, you can only do so much adjustment from a large headquarters in the rear. Um, it's up to your tactical commanders. So, so a senior commander should always be thinking, did I did I do everything I could to position my forces so they could succeed? That's the weather decision that he made. Mm-hmm. That's the deception plan that he helped implement. It's all those things. Mm-hmm. Did I have the logistics in place to support the men on the beach when they start to get those toeholds? Mm-hmm. That's what I think the General Eisenhower was thinking mm-hmm. more than anything. Mm-hmm. He also realized there. I mean, there was a terrible evil that they were that they were addressing. And so it was, it was a really important job that they were doing. Yeah. Incredibly important. I think everyone believed in the cause, which certainly helps Mm -hmm. uh, the effort no matter what. Um, But yeah, just a monumental uh, 
battle and operation. And I think all the participants knew it. Mm -hmm. I think they did, too. I think they did, too. Now, so you mentioned the deception. What was the name of the the deception? Operation Fortitude. And then D-Day was called Operation Overlord. Yes, Overlord. And Neptune was the naval component. So you'll hear Operation Neptune slash Overlord. Okay. But really a similar okay. combined operation. Okay. And it was a two-pronged attack. It was. Uh, it, it began with airborne and glider uh, vertical envelopment, as we call it in the military. But essentially, the two American divisions, the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne, were dropped on the uh, on the western side of the five beaches. And we're talking a 50-mile area of five invasion beaches. And so the 82nd and the 101st, Infiltrated, uh, dropped by parachute and glider, and their their objective was really to seize key intersections, create confusion, uh, hinder the Germans' ability to resupply and reinforce. And during the drops, there was a lot of confusion, as you can imagine, hundreds of planes with paratroopers at in darkness uh, trying to drop their sticks, as we call them, sticks of of of, of paratroopers over their objectives. Um, so you have pilots trying to avoid enemy aircraft fire, flak, uh, and you've got paratroopers going into some some because some cases miles away from their intended uh, drop zone. So, but the paratroopers really uh, uh, seized the initiative, regrouped, small unit leaders rallied their men, and they took off and did good things to sow confusion behind the German lines and prevent some reinforcements and organization on the Germans' part. It was true, truly amazing. One of the guys that we were in Normandy with was a member of the 101st Airborne. And to think about these young guys jumping in behind enemy lines in the middle of the night, it's an astonishing story to think about that. Uh, General Petty, we're going to go to break. When we come back, let's now talk about the beach assaults. There were five different beaches. Yep. So we're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. It's Rocky season, and Hooters is a great place to watch all the games. Wednesday is wing day. All the wings you can eat for fourteen ninety nine, and the smoked wings are delicious and only half the calories. And did you know that Hooters wings can fly? You can have Hooters wings delivered right to your front door. When the girls come over on Wednesday nights, I order Hooters wings, and uh, the girls love them. So order your Hooters wings to go. Have them delivered right to your front door. Or watch the game at Hooters. They have all kinds of TVs. So for more information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. And let them know that you know the Americhicks, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Americhicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. I'm thrilled to have in studio with me Brigadier General retired Chris Petty. Uh, He served in the Army, and he served in Bosnia, Iraq, uh, in stateside as well. And he has put together, compiled something that is truly amazing. It's called Battle Digest. And he has gone through and is um, taking many of the major battles throughout history and doing an executive summary on that. And today we are talking about D-Day. We are coming up on the 75th anniversary. June 6, 1944 was uh, D-Day. and We're coming up on the 75th celebration. So it seems like an appropriate time to talk about this battle. Now, General Petty, we, we talked about these young men of the 101st Airborne and the 82nd jumping in behind enemy lines, and the people of Normandy revere these guys. In fact, uh, in the stained glass window in the church in St. Marigles, they have in the stained glass the paratroopers, mm-hmm. and there are the words, you came back, and it was the Americans came back once again to save them, and it, it just took my breath away to see that. So we, we've talked a little bit about that, but then what about the beaches? There were five beaches. Yep, five beaches. Uh, the names are familiar to most of your listeners, Utah Beach, Omaha Beach, Gold, Juneau, and Sword. Um, and and they were covered by different units, obviously. But, but what people don't think about is these soldiers from all these four nations were let, let off on these uh, landing craft two hours one to two hours out to sea. So they're in these little boats getting mm-hmm. sick and they're nervous and they know they're going to hit a wall of steel and enemy. And they have to go an hour or two by these landing craft through the surf and the waves. And so the waves are big. The waves are big. The weather's bad. They're seasick. Um, but all of a sudden when the naval art- artillery starts firing off the ships, the soldiers have this rallying cry of of you know happiness and hope because their their enemies getting pounded by naval gunfire um 
So it's about 6.30 in the morning when the first waves of Americans start hitting Utah and Omaha Beach. The 4th Infantry Division, as we know in uh, Colorado, as, as a soft spot in our heart for the 4th ID down at Fort Carson, they landed on Utah Beach. Um, and then the uh, Omaha Beach, which was unquestionably the most difficult yeah. beach, and we'll talk yeah. about that probably in a minute. But uh, Omaha Beach was led by the 1st Infantry Division and the 29th Infantry Division, which is a National Guard division. Um, so the Americans hit the beaches first for a variety of reasons. One of them was tide, tidal conditions, mm-hmm. um, and the um, the British and the Canadians followed on Gold and Juno. Okay, yeah. And um, who was on Sword? Was that a conglomeration? Was wasn't there New Zealanders and um, Australians on some of those? There was well? uh, the Canadian and the Brits were on the initial waves going on to Juno and Sword. So primarily the British were on uh, on Sword Beach and the Canadians on Juno Beach. Okay, yeah, but. Um, Omaha Beach really was the most challenging, the most difficult, and the most casualty producing. And there's a variety of reasons for it. One was the the tides, the currents were a little bit unexpected, a lot like at Utah Beach. But at Utah Beach, the tides actually drifted the 4th Infantry Division to a less well-defended spot on the beach. So it actually turned out in their favor mm-hmm. as they could assault forward with less resistance and, and start capturing some of their initial objectives. But on Omaha, the same the same nasty tides had uh, put them off course. Units were in places they didn't expect to be, um, and and the armor that was being rolled in on on these landing crafts, essentially small armor, was all sunk by the waves. So they didn't have the the heavy firepower they were looking for, mm-hmm. and 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 they were not only was the terrain very difficult on Omaha Beach, but they also were up against one of the Germans' best field divisions at the time and so they really they really walked into the teeth of it and these were young guys yeah here so they're up against a, a seasoned fighting force and yeah. these are young guys right and and i don't want to create the impression that everybody along the 50 mile defensive position of the germans was a seasoned fighting force but the the first infantry division and the 29th infantry division coming up on uh, omaha beach were definitely against a seasoned fighting force okay. it was the 352nd Infantry Division, one of Germany's better okay. divisions. Okay. Yeah. So it was it was chaos. It was it was death. Uh, the courage of these men is just incredible. Even as a soldier, it's hard for me to imagine men going into those conditions. Um, it really almost gets me teared up. <laughs> you know, it's it's the same with me because I hadn't really thought about it. You know, we were standing. Two of the D-Day vets that we were with uh, were operating landing craft. And so we were standing behind them. They were looking out. You know, these are guys in their 90s now looking out at the beaches. One quietly said to the other one, he said, "You, do you remember the, the first day the water was red? It wasn't until the third day the water was pink. And that's the blood of uh, somebody was loved, each one of, the, each one of those drops of blood that yeah. those guys uh Yeah, the, the sacrifice was just amazing. I mean... uh most people know that Antietam was the bloodiest day in American history, a single day, but we lost uh, close to 1,500 Americans on this one day, and we lost about 4,500 Allied soldiers on that one day, mm-hmm. so it was a bloody day. It was a, a, a very bloody day. Somebody told me something, Chris, that I thought was really interesting, because when people come to know my love for Normandy and for this story, and they'll share, oh, I went to Normandy or I'm going to Normandy. And somebody had shared with me that they had taken their children, and you know, they were school-aged children, to Normandy, and they said, okay, I want you to do something. I want you to go out to where the water comes in, and I want you to run as fast as you can from there to the wall and think about what it would be like carrying a 75-pound pack with somebody shooting at you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what, that was powerful. Yeah. Yeah, just overcoming the odds and just going into the teeth of the enemy in well-prepared defensive positions. It's just the courage and the bravery. It's just amazing. It's amazing to me. Well, and Frank DeVita, who was really the first guy that we interviewed because we were going to be going to Normandy with him, uh, he ended up, I can't remember how many trips back and forth, but he was a ramp operator. Hmm. And he said as they were coming up, first wave on Omaha, he could hear, they called it Hitler's typewriter. It was the... uh, uh, machine guns mm-hmm. and he knew that when he let that 
that ramp down that those guys weren't going to survive. He said out of the, the initial 30, only three made it to the beach. Wow. Yeah. But uh, General Petty, I find it astonishing is then what he said after a few trips back and forth that they were putting the dead and wounded in these landing craft. They were taking them back. And then the Americans were taking these guys out and getting in those boats and going, going back and headed to yeah. Normandy Beach. It's amazing. So many little stories of sacrifice and bravery. It's just, it's just a remarkable day. It is. Yeah. So one other thing I wanted to ask yeah. you about that you have in here is Point to Hawk. Yeah. Point to Hawk is a, is a, is a fairly well-known you know, subplot of uh, D-Day because the 2nd Ranger Battalion uh, had to scale – these cliffs, uh, you know, a hundred feet of cliffs with scaling ladders and ropes under enemy fire to try to take out one of the most prominent gun positions on the, on the beaches, defending the beaches. And, uh, and so the Rangers through great adversity scaled up the rocks. Now, now granted the, the Germans had moved the guns just prior uh, to keep them out of, uh, the, the, uh, the allied fire from naval, naval, uh, uh, anti or counter battery fire, I guess you'd call it. Um, so, but still when they got to the top, they still had to fight through the, uh, enemy position, which is a strong defensive position and uh, try to create havoc back mm-hmm. below that point to Hawk because it was really a dominant spot mm-hmm. for, for the defender. So another subplot, great bravery, great courage by the second Ranger battalion. Well, and what they told us when we were there that actually because of the tides, the ladders weren't quite long enough. Had you ever heard that? I, I'm not familiar with that okay. That story, no. And and sometimes there's just great yeah, stories that yeah. come out of these things, but to the right. bravery of those that ranger battalion yeah, is pretty amazing. It is amazing. I can imagine climbing rocks and, and you know rope ladders, scaling ladders under, under fire. fire. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing. So let's go on. Uh, talk a little bit. The next thing that we have in here is Omaha. And that is really depicted in the movie Saving Private Ryan. And many of the guys that I've talked to that were there said that that's pretty true. Yeah. Obviously, I have no experience with that personally, but I can imagine that that's that's what I thought of, too, actually, as I was writing this or editing this was that was probably a pretty good feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, at least in in the comfort of your chair, Mm -hmm. that feeling of what it might have have seemed like on the beach that day. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty amazing quote that you have in here by Colonel George Taylor of the 16th Regiment and the 1st Infantry Division. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is so he is a remarkable leader, and uh, the 16th Regiment was part of the 1st ID, 1st Infantry Division. And uh, one of his quotes was captured, and he said, as his men were under intense fire, and he's watching people die all around him, He's yelling to his men, there are two kinds of people who are staying on this beach. Those who are dead and those who are going to die. Now let's get the hell out of here. And with that, he, his men rallied and small unit leaders took charge and they moved forward under intense fire to get get up to the uh, get up the cliffs. I just got chills as you. It's amazing. Yeah. As you tell that story. So onward, what's the next thing we should know about D-Day? Well, Utah Beach, Omaha Beach, uh, more well-known, again, because American forces were dominant there. Uh, Gold Beach, uh, Gold, Juno, and Sword didn't offer as much resistance as as Omaha. Omaha mm-hmm. really takes the, the fame here. Um, but, you know, the Brits came aboard on Sword Beach, and it wasn't, it wasn't easy. And they, uh, they swept in and got their objectives um, on the first day. And same thing with the British and the Canadians on on Juno Beach, but none of these beaches were easy. I don't want to create that impression at all. It's just compared to Omaha. Um, Omaha was so bad, in fact, just to go back for a second, that the high command in Germany thought that they, the Americans had actually been stopped. That's how bad mm-hmm. Omaha was. They thought they stopped the Americans cold on Omaha Beach. So so it's amazing it went through. But, but the Brits at Gold, the Canadians at Juno, and the Brits at Sword all – you know, remarkable bravery, courage, and under enemy resistance and enemy fire. Well, and these guys are revered throughout the military as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were able to witness, they have a, a parachute jump every D-Day at the, the Fields of Lafayette. Okay. And it's a big honor to be chosen from, you know, current military ranks to get to jump there. And then they also have uh, reenactors that jump. 
And so there we are. We got to be out on the field because one of our guys was 101st Airborne. And General Petty, when I saw these young guys after they jumped, and he said, this is Guy Whitten of the 101st Airborne. I mean, they just, you couldn't, they, they just circled around him. They just yeah. wanted to talk to him because yeah. they revere that uh, in the military. Yeah, and that's the lineage passed down in these divisions. I mean, they really honor that their division performed admirably and, and um, you know, bravely at D-Day. It's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about Omaha. Because by the end of the day, you mentioned that the, the Brits and the Canadians had had success, you know, and yep. it wasn't easy, yep. but it That's wasn't right. as hard as Omaha and that they had had punched through by the first day. What about Omaha? Yeah, Omaha, again, I, I talked about the initial confusion with the currents and units go, being dropped in spots they weren't expecting. Um, uh, another thing about Omaha was because of the low cloud cover, the naval gunfire had actually overshot the targets. So that was another thing working against the allies on that beach in particular is um, naval gunfire had shot long essentially. And so the German defenders, and again, this, this very proficient German infantry division they were up against um, really weren't destroyed. So they were facing the full wrath of uh, that German division as they tried to assault the beach. Um, Again, weather Mm -hmm. played a role. But by the end of the day, they had a toehold. They did. They had a toehold. It was very tenuous, but they had a toehold. And uh, and and thankfully, the Germans bit on a uh, a little subplot of deception here. Uh, there was another f- uh, fake airborne drop, and apparently, and I don't know all the details of this, but the reserve of that unit that was defending was actually called off to go respond to that that deception airborne drop. So again, another piece of deception that helped our, helped our assault force. Well, and what the guys told me with these deceptions is they actually had recorders and, mm-hmm. and they made it sound like it was really people. Right. And so it was pretty yeah, amazing. Like it was amazing. Off there. Yeah. You didn't have the drones and everything back then. So, <laughs> no. I mean, you created deception with some, you know, old school noises and intercepted radio traffic and you could really create something in the mind of the enemy. Well, yeah, and you, you even think about it now. I hadn't really appreciated when I've talked to the bom- guys that were on the bombers. A navigator, you know, you don't have a GPS right. that gets you where you need to go. That's I mean, right. they had to look at the coordinates. It's pretty amazing. I am amazed. You know, I started my career on a map in a helicopter. I flew Blackhawks most of my career, and I was on a map in a helicopter with my fingers going the speed of a helicopter over a map, mm-hmm. and uh, transition. 20 years later, I'm in Iraq at night doing air assaults and it's pitch black. There's no way I could have done that with a map. Uh It was GPS. I mean, it was just the transition in my career was amazing. Well, and when you mentioned overshooting the target, and this was another thing that I've, I've learned is that you actually, you know, would have people be on the lookout of, you know, where you needed to so pull it back a few feet Mm -hmm. or whatever to try to hit the target And, uh, and so if the, you know, if, if it was overcast, I can understand that's right. why they were having Artillery trouble with Artillery spotters that. couldn't yeah. tell where the artillery rounds were okay. landing. The cloud cover was low enough. So, so the allied, the naval force had not softened up those targets for the assault. That's really the bottom line Yeah. on that beach. Yeah. So they had a lot of adversity on that beach yeah. and they still managed to get, they got that, that through. Hold. Yeah, they that's got right. That and then one of the, our guys was a pilot, and uh, the, and we went to different schools there in Normandy. And, and I remember when the kids raised their hand, and they said, were you scared? He said, yeah, I was scared. Yeah. And he said, you know, they're coming in, there's the flak. And um, the, the guys jokingly said to the, the, the guy, it wasn't Air Force, it was Air Corps, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, that's right, Army Air Corps. Army Air Corps. They said, you know, you guys, all you did was you uh, bombed a few cows out in a pasture. We were waiting for you. And, and so they kind of jokingly said, you know, you overshot, yeah. overshot it. But think about it, Chris, yeah. coming in on that day with that many aircraft. That's right. I mean, it would be oh, yeah. chaos. It would be chaos. It's dark. You're getting shot at. You're young. You, yep, you're young. You want to you wanna maneuver to avoid clusters of fire. So, yeah, I, I mean, planes were off course. And one other thing I want to say about the boys at Point de Hawk, uh, Ronald Reagan was there, I think, on the 50th okay. uh, celebration. And I've watched a video of that many times when he talks about 
that ranger division, the the point, the boys at Point to Hawk, and yeah. it just takes my breath away. Yeah, yeah, just a, another remarkable unit. Obviously, one of the legacies of the Ranger battalions today. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, fantastic bravery and determination and courage. Okay, so uh, General Petty, we're going to go to break. When we come back, I want to finish this this whole executive summary that you've done on D-Day. And, uh, you know, this is the show right before D-Day. It is the 75th mm-hmm. anniversary. I know a number of vets that are over there now. I wish I was with them yeah. because, but it's going to be uh, quite a celebration over in Normandy, France uh, on June 6th this year, because it is the 75th anniversary. So this is Kim Munson uh, with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Thrilled to be having this conversation with Brigadier General, retired Chris Petty. Uh, he served in the Army, and he served in Bosnia, Iraq, and then different places here stateside as well. And he has taken something that he put together. He started for his men and women uh, who were serving uh, with him uh, and, and made this into something that I think is important for every American. It's called Battle Digest. Lessons for Today's Leaders. Uh, so, General Petty, this is truly amazing. You, we're talking about the one that you've done on D-Day. Uh, but how can people get more information on Battle Digest? Well, the easiest way, Kim, is just to go to the website, um, and that's just simply battledigest.com. So think of Reader's Digest for war. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I'm trying to convey. It's Battle Digest, and uh, the first thing you'll see is the uh, – is the quality of this publication, whether you get it digitally or whether you get it in print. I, of course, I'm a little old school. I love the print. I like the I trifold like the, yes, me too. the quality of this paper and the images. So I think it's visually very appealing. It is. Uh, and it's really concise. And And my goal is to uh, is to help you understand key battles throughout history with only 3,000 words. I mean, I want you to be able to understand it's it amazing. in 30 minutes. It is truly amazing. Yeah. I would so highly recommend parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents to to start to read these stories to our children because these stories are the things that connect us with the past and uh, and then we need to move those lessons into the future. So one of the things that's so interesting about the Battle Digest is then you talk about lessons learned. Right. Now, it, it, clearly this was, you can see that this is my bias for a military audience, which I think I think actually the civilians and the historians will love it. In, in fact, they do, because I try to pull out relevant uh, doctrinal uh, lessons from every battle, and every battle has unique lessons in it. You know, D-Day is a story of maneuver and deception at the operational level of war. It's a story of logistics, unlike other battles. Who might mm-hmm. that might be a story of individual leadership mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. So, so what I like to highlight is, you know, in this particular battle or operation that we call D-Day, which, again, is just the first day of what was essentially a couple of week long, couple of weeks long effort to secure that lodgment in northern France so that we could uh, advance into liberating France and then into Nazi Germany. But D-Day um, brings out several very relevant lessons to today's um, mi- military professionals. Uh, and again, people that are interested in history. So the first one is maneuver. I mean, D-Day demonstrates the concept of maneuver at the strategic and operational level of war. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, the the key to maneuver is to position your forces in, in a way that's ad, an advantage to you and a disadvantage to your enemy, essentially. And with, with uh, Hitler, the requirement for Hitler to defend on such a long mm-hmm, front, mm-hmm. his 800-mile Atlantic Wall, as long as the Allies could mass combat power at, the, at, at a decisive point, it was going to be difficult for Hitler to stop him. Mm-hmm. And so, so that is classic maneuver. You know, get your point, get your forces to a point where the enemy is going to have a difficult time stopping them massing your forces at an enemy weak point and uh, through deception and the things we've talked about. So D-Day really does demonstrate that principle of war, essentially, which is maneuver. Okay. Uh, another great concept is deception. We talked a little bit about that. But without deception, um, D-Day may not have, may not have succeeded um, because if the Germans, if Rommel as the sector commander would have been able to to mass his forces to meet that that invasion, I don't think we would have succeeded. 
because we were vulnerable on the beaches, mm-hmm. vulnerable in the in the short distance in the water. Uh, and so the fake equipment, the fake radio traffic, the fake rehearsals, all confirming Hitler's bias towards Calais was critical to mm-hmm. the su- success of D-Day. So again, we're demonstrating another important concept in warfare. Um, something else to think about is intelligence. We don't talk a lot about that. Sometimes it's not the the uh, sexy aspect of, you know, of, of an advantage or disadvantage that you have. But most of your listeners heard of the code-breaking technology called Ultra. Well, because we had access to Ultra, and there's been good movies made about it, we could actually intercept and decipher German communications. So Eisenhower had a pretty good idea, not a perfect view, but he had a pretty good idea of German troop dispositions and locations, which really helped him in his planning. And the Germans uh, were relatively blind to the Allies' intentions and force movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had a big intelligence advantage for the Allies. Again, that played into our hands and helped us succeed on, on D-Day. Um, logistics is another classic concern for commanders of large-scale operations. And D-Day was a master, masterful, massive logistics enterprise the planning that went into um, staging the equipment, staging the supplies, the the firepower, the follow-on um, uh, requirements for those units as they built up on the beaches, stocking ammunition. I mean, even to the point where the Allies built these what were called Mulberry Harbors and uh, because there was no harbor mm-hmm. on the be- the five beaches of, of the Normandy invasion area. And yet they had to offload ships. And so they built these mulberry harbors in England and towed them across the channel, put them in place at two specific beaches on, on the Normandy beaches and started offloading ships. Mm-hmm. I mean, that all had to be pre-planned mm-hmm. and pre-positioned. And it was really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Logistics is definitely not the sex, sexiest aspect of warfare, but it is Boy, as critical. I think about it even just with like the 101st Airborne or the 82nd Airborne. You know, they they jumped in. They had to have their packs. They all had rations for, I think, three days. They had right. these clickers. Right. I mean, they had to have all of these different things. One of the guys had said that uh, he, if Germany was paying attention, they should have known something was up because they've been do, doing their training mm-hmm. in uh, in England, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden at night, none of the servicemen were ever at the bars again. So yeah. something should have been up if uh, yes. the Germans would have been paying attention. It, yeah, that's a great point. But uh, the Germans really they they had a setback when their spies were arrested. There was a big uh, uncovering of spies, German spies, and they were arrested, and some of them were turned into double agents. So. So Germany was relatively blind. So that intelligence component, yes, exa- wow. Definitely okay, the intelligence component, yeah. And, you know, uh, back to logistics, uh, the, a great quote from uh, General Bradley, Omar Bradley, was amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. There's a lot of truth to that. And Operation Overlord D-Day was a real logistic, uh, heavy, heavy movement. Okay, so for somebody non-military, explain exactly what that means. What it means is everything you need to support your your battlefield fight to support your operation really falls into logistics. So that can be food and ammunition and uh, petroleum for the vehicles when they start rolling ashore. Um, it's it's repair parts. It's vehicles. It's it's parachutes. It's wow. It's yeah, spare this, that, and the other, and it's. Uh, and it's push packages, so those units could then move forward into Got France. It. So it is a, I mean, the consumption of fuel. Yes. I mean, obviously today it's way more than it was back then. But, but just think of the logistical hurdles and and packages that they had mm-hmm. to put together just to sustain that foothold, mm-hmm. much less expand it. Wow, and, and so you can be doing something great tactically, but if you don't have your support and all your logistics right. there, then, yeah. if then you, you're cooked. Yeah, especially in modern war, and I consider, you know, World War II was a transitioning kind of, but but when you have the requirement for fuel and ammunition in the quantities that we're talking about, World War II and on, uh, if you outrun your logistics, you're, 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 you're dead. Trouble. You're dead in the water. You are in trouble. Yeah, you really are. Now, some of the other interesting things that especially, uh, you know, for, for, for military historians and military professionals was 
the compare and contrast with the with styles of command and the structures of command. So you mentioned earlier, Kim, that you know Eisenhower was the commander, and the Allies learned from World mm-hmm. War One some of the hard lessons of having some split commands and confusing command structures. So early on, the Brits and the Americans decided that we're going to put Eisenhower in charge. Unity of command is a principle of war, and it was well demonstrated here by the Allies. Eisenhower had the authority to make the decisions like the weather call, and he also had the authority to move resources, and including naval resources and air resources, to support his operation. Rommel didn't have that authority. Rommel had... Uh, Hitler was at this point in the war was really starting to micromanage his field commanders. So Rommel couldn't reposition reserves unless he got Hitler's permission. And, and that's so, why he was back in Berlin. That's right. More stuff. He, he was trying to get more mobile heavy armor reserves. Um, and so you could probably see pretty quickly how that type of over centralized command competing with this allied unity of command where Eisenhower has the authority and the resources and Rommel has some authority and not all the resources. Mm-hmm. It really, the advantage really goes to the allies with that unity of command. So mm-hmm. it's another great principle of war to demonstrate to, uh, you know, people interested in history. Um, clearly the allies had air and sea superiority and that was critical in the attack. Imagine if, if the German Navy at this point in the war was strong and mm-hmm. could, could, intercept those ships in the uh, in, uh, in the channel. channel. Yeah, it would have been a whole different outcome. And so we had naval superiority, we had air superiority, which really increases the odds of success. Mm-hmm. And even when the Germans started coming out for for some counterattacks and repositioning their units, the air power, the Army Air Corps, was decimating them on the roads. Mm-hmm. So that's a lesser told story of D-Day and the, and the days after. And then the last one we've talked about before, and that's the, you know, the overextended defensive line. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you know, Hitler may not have much, it may not have had much choice, and Rommel had his sector that he had to defend. But again, if if your attacker can mass his forces and support that assault and penetrate that line, and the defender has things spread out under a long 800 miles, you're gonna, you're gonna get an advantage to the attacker if you can bring sufficient combat power to, to play. So mm-hmm. those are some bigger, more interesting lessons of a battle like D-Day. Well, I find it, I find it absolutely fascinating. And going back to a detail, because we have probably oh, about six minutes here okay. to finish up, is I hadn't really thought about all the, all the Allied boats coming across the channel. Were, were right. there any... I mean, did Hitler know? Were there in, were there any attacks on any of our boats, or what was the situation there? Uh, there were attacks, but again, the the German Navy was not a big factor uh, in this battle because by this point in the war, the English Navy had pretty well cleared the channel okay. from German U-boat threats. I mean, they were still out there, but they weren't decisive in the outcome of D-Day. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, so General Petty, what would you say in, in doing all this study— is there one or two stories uh, about an individual or about something that really touched you on D-Day? Uh, I, I think as opposed to one individual, I think what really, uh, what what I walk away most impressed with and just most moved by is the courage of the individual infantrymen facing those kind of obstacles and not turning around and saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I mean, they they faced it bravely. They faced it with conviction. I mean, again, as we talked about, they were seasick. They were nervous. They knew they were going to go into the teeth of the enemy. But yet they still did it. It was remarkable. That is just remarkable to me. Now, I understand the duty of a soldier, mm-hmm. but those conditions, I would have imagined more men would have, you know, maybe uh, shirked their responsibilities or turned tail and run or mm-hmm. But but they didn't. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my individual courage, small unit takeaway from D Day. Besides all the big lessons learned, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll share with the. Is there anything else that no. you really okay? No. Then I'll share a story with you that um, I mentioned that we were at the Fields of Lafayette, yeah. and my friend who uh, is from uh, Holland, and uh, they have uh, he and his family had been adopting these graves. He came over and he said, Kim. He said uh, there's a German 
World War II vet here, and he wants to talk to our guys. And uh, since I can uh, translate, he went over, and the story went something like this. And I've told this in different different venues, but you never know what the what one person can make a difference. And so this German World War II vet said, I was on the beaches of Normandy on the day of D-Day, and we saw the Allies coming. We knew we were in for it. And uh, he said, you know, we were having skirmishes on the beach, and uh, I had just a couple more shots left in my carbine. And I saw this young American GI come up onto the beach, and he said, I pulled my carbine out, I pointed it at him, and I shot it, uh, and I hit him in the gut. And I saw this young American soldier... And he was thinking about it. He said, you know, he's across an ocean far away from his family, protecting people, standing up for people he doesn't even know. He says, I saw him go down to his knees. He took his helmet off. He um, went down face first. He turned over on his back. He made the sign of the cross, and then he died. And he said, and I thought about me. He said, all I'd ever known was Hitler. Hitler was our God. And he said, here's this young guy that is willing to do this for something bigger than himself. And so he said, I, I deserted. And uh, eventually I was caught and I was sent to Siberia. There must have been, I don't know quite how mm-hmm. that happened, but he said, and we were sent on, on patrols that we were not supposed to survive. And he said, I did survive them. And he said, here I am 72 years later to let you know that that last action by that young American soldier on Omaha Beach changed my life. Yeah. And I just wanted you to know that. Yeah, it's amazing. We part of my effort here with Battle Digest is we just can't lose we just can't lose this history, you know, especially in these times, you know, we need unifying themes and this history is unifying and and amazing and it's one of the things that makes this country so great. Young men and women willing to do this for a greater good. It's amazing. It, it is amazing. So, uh General Brigadier General Chris Petty, retired Army, thank you for being here today. My I greatly pleasure. appreciate My it. My pleasure, Kim. And once again, how can people get Battle Digest? Because uh, I tell you what, I need to get signed up. Well, it's, again, Kim, it's easy. Just BattleDigest.com. Just one word, BattleDigest.com. Check it out. And uh, if you like it, if you want it digitally or hard copy, just let us know. It's pretty easy. And can you buy one at a time? You can buy one at a time, okay. or you can subscribe and get one every other month. Okay, so this is the show that is right before the 75th celebration of D-Day. I would highly recommend that you go get this, and that is at BattleDigest.com, uh, Lessons for Today's Leaders, World War II D-Day. I think this is an amazing an amazing thing that you've put together here, General Petty. Thanks, Kim. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Okay, great to have you. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project as signing off. God bless you, and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.